Happy Father's Day. And as uh, it's kind of an annual uh, tradition here that on Mother's Day and Father's Day, we do follow that theme. And so for Mother's Day, we followed a theme and of mothers. And uh, today I want to do the same thing, although it's going to be my mutated sort of take on it. So let's see how it, this goes. I don't know about you all. Have you all felt that uh, communication is risky business? Have you ever felt that way? <laughs> I mean, I'm at the point now where whenever I send a text or an email, I'm reading it like five times and trying to make sure that nothing can be misconstrued, there are no typos, there's no this or that, that the autocorrect didn't come in and make me say something I really would regret. You know, and uh, but communication, it just seems like it's so difficult. If anything, it seems like it's getting more difficult lately, especially with the polarization of our of our society and, and so on and so forth. It's like everything that can be misconstrued will be misconstrued and in the probably the worst possible way. And so communication is something that is difficult and especially when it's something on an issue that is emotionally charged or we're dealing with something that is paradoxical or spiritually related. Well, guess what? Everything we talk about in here is emotionally charged and paradoxical and spiritually related. So it's no, uh, I suppose, surprise that sometimes when I'm sitting up here and doing a monologue and trying to hit the center of each one of your targets and whoever is out on the other side of that camera, that a few things don't fall exactly where I would like them to. It's just really interesting to me, and I really appreciate the feedback when I get it, you know, and I hear about what people got out of certain messages or whatever. And it's not that we all have to get the same thing or that you even have to get what I'm trying to put out here. I remember in college when I was uh, uh, doing English Lit and Creative Writing as a major, and I watched this interview with a very famous author whose name I can't even remember right now. But the uh, interviewer was going on about all of this wonderful things that, that he took out of the writing of this author. And when he finally finished this, this, you know, this great soliloquy here, um, the author said, yeah, I guess you could say that was in there. And you know, a light bulb went on for me, and I realized you know, I was idolizing so many of these authors that are putting all these complicated themes and oh, metaphors and all this stuff in, and they're just writing stories. So many of us are the ones who are pulling out and finding meaning and interpreting it. And for us, it's valid. And that's the beauty of creative writing. That's the beauty of poetry, that it is available to be interpreted in so many different ways. That's the beauty of our scripture, is that it has that depth. It has that layer of meaning. So uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was talking about Ecclesiastes. And, uh, you know, one of the bleakest books in the Bible, if you're looking at it from a certain perspective. And someone said that what they got out of it is that we shouldn't strive at all. We shouldn't be trying to, to accomplish anything. We shouldn't be doing anything. Someone else was saying, yeah, well, we should just be enjoying all of our moments. And it's interesting to me because those kind of, of, uh, of ideas are in there. But really, the synthesis that I was trying to get across is that we shouldn't identify with our striving. We shouldn't identify with the accomplishment. Not that we don't work hard. Not that we don't strive for excellence. To continue to do that. To try to better our circumstances and the circumstances of the people around us and those that are in our path. That's part of the human condition. That's part of what we do. But if we're too identified with the outcome and the accomplishment, then we're going to find out later on in life that there was no meaning there in and of itself. The meaning came from within and the connection 
that was being formed in the doing of those accomplishments. Now, on Mother's Day, I spent a lot of time trying to pull the pendulum back from the patriarchal side to the matriarchal side, and I was kind of uh, surprised that a friend of mine actually got pretty hot, kind of angry, because his take on it was, was that I was denigrating men. He thought that, and, 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 you know, was feeling that what I was basically saying is that men should act more like women. And that I was giving zero credit to men for being able to be compassionate, to be warm, to be caring, to, to have any of those kind of, of empathic qualities. And it, I didn't see that one coming. That really took me by surprise because um, nothing could be further from the truth in terms of what I was trying to get across. Now, um, <laughs> you know, you might be able, you can disagree with anything that I say. You know, and I always reserve the right to be wrong up here. I'm telling you what I'm convinced of, like we've established so many times. It's up to you to go be convinced of what you're convinced of. And so I'll take the blame for miscommunication here. And I want to try to set the record a little bit straight because I don't believe that men should act like women or women should act like men. That we need to be ourselves, of course. And, and, without trying to justify what I was saying, let me try to explain just a little bit that there are innate attributes that we have as men and women. And there are traditional roles that we play as men and women culturally that characterize male and female and characterize masculine and feminine. And so those are in the broad terms, in the broad strokes. Men and women usually come down on these sides innately. And then they're the environment and the culture forms us in certain ways. But be clear, any one of us can be anywhere on the spectrum between hard masculine and hard feminine and be a mix. The goal for us is to be as balanced as possible, to bring those traits to the middle. But we're still, of course, going to be fully who we are as men and as women. Because men can be the glue that holds the family together. You know, we've talked about Abba and Ima, Ab and Em. Ab means strong house in Hebrew, and Em means the glue is strong water, the glue that holds the family together. Men can be that. In fact, I was just talking to a young man um, counseling uh, a few days ago whose father died about four months ago due to COVID. And his family is fracturing and, and falling apart. That used to be so tight because it was his dad who was that glue, who held the family together. Just by the force of his, his personality and, and the, the love and the connection and the empathy that he had with everyone. And mom can't really fill that role. She can't fit into those shoes. And so, yes, men can be the glue that holds the family together. And women can be the strong leader that is a traditional male role. And so we can be anywhere and a combination of all of those, and we're going to fall down on one side or another, and that's the way it should be. And as traditional roles between men and women are changing culturally and changing so fast now, we can change as well with that. We can roll with that without losing our own identity if we have formed that in the first place. And that's the whole point. We have the freedom now in this culture to be able to move without stigma 
at different places on the spectrum in terms of the roles we play and who we are. But many of us are getting lost and don't know who we are anymore in all of this confusion. To be able to establish that and hold on to that as we move and change and, and do what we do within our culture and within our homes and our families. But we are free to be able to find our place, our mix, but always trying to balance in the center. Strengthen the weak hand, whatever it might be. And of course, we have to be aware enough of what that weak hand is in order to consciously and intentionally work to strengthen it. But even all that said, the focus of the message on Mother's Day and the focus today on Father's Day was not supposed to be on us. It wasn't only supposed to be on our roles and how our identity affects things, but on how our roles and identity affect our concept of God. That was really the point of it. Because our concept of God, what we think of God, colors our view of life changes the way that we approach life, our attitudes towards life. And if we conceive of a God without any maternal attributes, that's frightening. If we conceive of a God who really doesn't have that unconditional love, doesn't have that empathy, doesn't have that compassion, doesn't have that intimacy, who is removed and far away and is the judge and the executor, that's a frightening way to live life. But on the flip side, if we are conceiving of a God without paternal attributes, and what are those? Usually the standards and the demands, right? The discipline and the punishment that goes along with the king, with the executor. If we imagine a God without those paternal attributes, that offers us no structure, offers us no restriction, no limitations on us by which we grow. Think about it. It is the restrictions that are placed on us, the limitations that are placed on us through law, through family, through culture, through relationship that we buck up against, that we grate against. That's what causes us to grow, to mature, to establish the strong identity that can withstand all of these changes that we're talking about. We need both. We always need both. It's always a both and and never an either or. But please understand, mom can have standards and hold you to them and make you accountable, right? And dad can have compassion and be the glue that holds the family together. But these archetypal roles remain. They remain with us. They remain with our culture. And we're not trying to focus on these individual human fathers and mothers and how they play their role as parents in our lives, but on how our experience of those roles of our parents in our lives colors our view of life and colors our view of God. And beyond our own personal experience of those who raised us, our society, our culture, and our church how have the forces and the beliefs and the norms of our culture and our churches also formed us and formed our conception of God? And when we really look at it, those macro forces, church, culture, nation, have so stressed the patriarch patriarchal, 
that we need to then move the pendulum back. They have so stressed law and performance and obedience and competition that our concept of Father God is now skewed to that patriarchal side, and it keeps us fearful. Which is why every Mother's Day, I'm trying to yank the pendulum back to the other side, and maybe sometimes I overshoot for some people. But the point is, what we want to do is end up in the middle, in that sweet spot in the middle, where things are in balance. That's what we're trying to get to. But even in balancing mom and dad in God, the, these, these concepts of masculine and feminine and all those attributes, we can still find other things to be afraid of and things to fear, even if we've started to get more comfortable with the idea of balancing between matriarchal and patriarchal. And as long as we're walking around in fear, guess what? We're not perfected in love. We read that in 1 John 4 just uh, last Sunday or the Sunday before. We've all been taught and we've all experienced scarcity, supply and demand, right? Zero sum. This idea that if for us to gain anything, it has to come out of somebody else's hide. And if someone else gets something, it's coming out of ours. There's only so much oil in the ground. And if we don't get ours, then we're not going to have a chair to sit in when the music stops. And I know I'm mixing some metaphors there, but I think you get the idea. This idea of, of this patriarchy, this idea of competition, this idea of performance for approval has put us in and brought us into a scarcity mentality. We look at the world as being so finite in its resources that it keeps us defended. It keeps us damned up. When we do get something, we hold on to it. We're not free to let things flow, let resources flow through us. We're not free to be the conduit of either our resources as it come through or God's love as it comes through. Because we're worried. If I let this go, am I going to have anything back? Is there going to be enough for me? That scarcity mentality plays on us in such a way that it changes everything of the way that we relate to each other. That's what we're trying to understand here. That we can't really experience God's love as Jesus is presenting it if we are looking at the world with a scarcity mentality. Jesus is painting a very different picture of Father God, trying to get us to understand, to change our basic concepts so that even the possibility of the kind of love that he is expressing can become real for us, that we can actually experience it. Take a look at some of the things that Jesus said. Just go through a few, they're going to seem like random passages, but at John 10.10, 10, this is where Jesus is using the beautiful metaphor of the good shepherd. He's talking about, I am the shepherd. I am the good shepherd. I am the door of the sheepfold, he says, that only through me, only through this door, can my people actually come in and, and be safe in the enclosure and then go out and find pasture and be filled? He's giving us this metaphor because he says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. This isn't about grinning and bearing it. This isn't about holding on with our fingernails. This isn't about just trying to eke out an existence until we finally get to heaven where we have the abundance. He's talking about it right here and right now. 
There is a way to live our lives where it feels abundant. It feels unrestricted. Where we are free enough and fearless enough to let resources flow through us to the people that need it in our path. At Luke 5, starting at verse 1, this is where he meets Simon for the first time, who's going to be renamed Peter, right? The fisherman on the beach. They've been fishing all night long. They caught absolutely nothing. They're exhausted. They're pulling their nets in. And Jesus stops them. And all the people have followed him. And he says, can I get in your boat and just row out just a little ways? And so he's preaching to the people who are all gathered on the beach, on the shore. And he's just a few yards out at in the lake, in the boat, and he's preaching to them. And then when he's done preaching, starting at verse 4, he tells Peter and his friends, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish, and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they both began to sink. Talk about abundance. Talk about scarcity mentality. And when you hear the word of Jesus, to be able to go out into deeper water, to go deeper into our own spirit, into our own psyche, and find this abundance that we never knew existed on the surface. See what Jesus is trying to get across. Matthew 14, starting at verse 14. This is right after John the Baptist was beheaded and killed. And Jesus is grieving. And he tries, as he always does, when he gets to the end of himself, to get out by himself into the wilderness and just pray, just to regenerate, just to reconnect with his Father. And he does that. But the people follow him in their eagerness to be connected to him and, of course, to be healed by him. And so he dutifully begins preaching to them and healing them, and he's working with them all through the day, and night is about to fall. And in verse 19, at the end of the day, they're all hungry. They're a long way from the nearest Kmart. There is nothing they're going to be able to get. And Jesus orders the people to sit down on the grass. And he takes five loaves and two fish, and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food, and breaking the loaves, he gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. They picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, 12 full baskets. There were about 5,000 men who ate besides women and children. Radical abundance, crazy abundance. From the smallest, most finite beginnings that we imagine, that we conceive, to this abundance that we can't completely consume no matter how hard we try. Messages of abundance. Matthew 13, verse 1. This is the parable of the sower and the seed. Remember the parable, the the sower is, uh, the farmer is just throwing the seeds seeds indiscriminately because that's basically what you did on a Galilean hillside. It was full of rocks. It was was thin soil. It was really not good for planting. So you couldn't really furrow. You couldn't prepare the land much. You basically just scattered the seeds and some fell on the footpath that was already hard packed. It bounces off and is eaten by the birds. Some of it goes into the rocks and between the rocks and it'll sprout there quickly, but there's nowhere for the roots to go. So it it dies. Some of it goes into the thorn bushes, and it grows up, but it's choked out. But some of it falls on the good soil. And Jesus says at verse 8, and others' seeds fell on the good soil, 
and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. At verse 12, for whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. Images of abundance. When the soil is good, and the soil is us, the soil is our heart, of course. The soil is our readiness, our willingness, our openness to something that is so new and different. If we can just do that, the abundance is there. It is our scarcity mentality that shelves us off from being able to conceive of even just enough to take the first steps into the abundance that Jesus is talking about. In Matthew 5, verse 44, this is right at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And he's been talking about loving the enemy. That when we do love the enemy, we are sons of, as if avatars of the Father here on earth. But I say to you, at verse 44, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. It doesn't matter who we are. It doesn't matter how hard or well we perform or how badly. As if sun and rain, the indiscriminate nature of sun and rain falling on everybody who is not under shelter, is God's love and presence falling on us. This abundance, this crazy abundance that can't be turned off, can't be attenuated in any way. Yes, we can go get out from underneath. We can stand in the shade if we want to. We can raise an umbrella if we want to, but it can't affect the shower. It can't affect the sunshine. It is what it is. Crazy abundance. This is what Jesus is trying to get across. He's painting a picture of extravagant abundance, a wild outpouring from his Father, an expenditure that you can't even count. And of course, the the prime example of it all, of course, is the prodigal son, which really should be renamed the prodigal father, right? Prodigal doesn't mean someone who has gone away and come back. Prodigal means someone who is wastefully extravagant. And that was what the boy did when he got his money. But who gave him the money in the first place when he didn't deserve it? When he asked for his inheritance, wildly out of time. Basically telling his father, you're as good as dead to me. I just want the money so I can go. You know, This impetuous youth who could have been stoned for such an insolent thing, dishonoring his father that way. But the father just outpours, showers it on him. And when he comes back, he showers again. You know, here's this picture of this wild outpouring. There's no scarcity here. There's certainly no zero sum. The elder brother, of course, is outraged because he's the one with the scarcity mentality. He's the one who is coloring in between the lines. But notice his share is not and cannot be diminished no matter how many parties father throws for his other son, for the elder son's brother. Nothing can diminish his share of everything. Both sons have everything the father has, everything the father can give. And there is no way that that can be diminished. It's all the time. It's every when. And this is what Jesus is trying so hard to get across to people who live in fear, to people who live at the margins, 
who rarely can get enough of what they need. But there is a deeper well within them that will help them to be able to overcome, to see meaning and purpose even in the difficulties that they face if they can move past the scarcity mentality. And to drive this point home, Jesus called God by different names. And the names are significant. The first name that he called Jesus, that he called God was Father, Ab. We talked about that before. Ab is the strong leader, the tribal leader, the king, the judge, the builder, if you will, in that macro sense. But then Jesus moves from Ab to Abba. Abba is the personal father, daddy, if you will. It points to an intimate connection. It points to a familiarity. It points to a relationship that you don't have with your king, but you can have with your daddy as you crawl into his lap. And this idea of Abba as daddy has elements of Ima, mommy, in it as well. There is the crossing of the two because there is the compassion, there is the warmth, there is the connection of Abba Father crossing the lines into mother territory. Then, take a look at the first lines of the Lord's Prayer for another name that Jesus uses, Matthew 6, starting at verse 9. We know this one. We say this one every Sunday, right? Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Or as transliterated from at least the Syriac Aramaic, Avundavashmaya, Nitkadashmach, if we take the Lord's Prayer and put it back into Aramaic, the actual thought forms that Jesus spoke, and we take that first word, avun, that's another word for Father, our Father. Notice it is our Father, not my Father. This is going to be a collective Father. In Aramaic, avun is a combination of ab, aleph, bet, ra, and rb, and vun, what looks like a w and an n, which is vav and nun in Aramaic script. This would be pointing to father as a flow of birthing and creation. Well, where in the world do you get that? Well, we talked about aleph being strong, the first and the foremost, the strongest of something in their alphabet because each letter has a name and also a meaning, and bet being the picture of a house in the early pictograms. So you have strong house. We've talked about that. When you take vav, what looks like our W, it was originally the pictogram of a tent peg. And so by extension, it meant security. It's the peg that holds down the tent and secures the house. And so you have this tent peg. You have the idea of security. Nun was the picture, the pictogram of a germinating seed. And so you have this idea of continuing life. When you put all that together, you have a strong creator, a strong builder or a leader of a house that continues. This is the way Aramaic, Hebrew, Arabic, the Semitic languages work. They have a root and pattern system. And so getting back to the, the concepts that we're, we're working so hard to understand of writers who wrote 2,000, 3,000 years ago is to use this root and pattern system to get back to the earlier forms of the word so that we see what was in the Semitic mind as they were using the words that they use. 
a strong creator, builder, leader of a house that continues. It's a non-gender specific, if you will, cosmic parent is what we're getting to when we're talking about Avun. And so it's moving out. The creator of everything, the first cause, right? Ab, that macro father, the king that stands aloof. Abba, Jesus uses, the micro father, the personal father, the one with whom we have an intimate connection. And now Avun, this cosmic parent that incorporates everything and incorporates the the eternal nature of life as the Hebrews saw it. Now, how are we going to describe this avun? How does that work? Now we have the next word in the, in the Lord's Prayer, the Vashmaya. One thing to understand about Aramaic, again, is that they don't have the little words that we have. They don't have conjunctions and prepositions that connect words and phrases together. What they use are prefixes and suffixes. Just letters, again, that have meaning to them, added to what are called the lexeme, the actual root word that we're dealing with. And so when you have dubashmaya, the word root there, the lexeme, is shem, which is the word for name, but also means light and sound and, and uh, essence and character. And before that, you have two prefixes, both a D and a B, R-D and B, their dalit and their bet. And they mean something. The prefixes before Shemaiah that we have translated as who art in, right? Our Father who art in heaven. If you translate it directly out of the Aramaic, it'd be simpler. It'd just be our Father in heaven. But that really doesn't carry the weight of what the Dalit and the Bet actually mean. Because in this idea, this Semitic idea, God is not separate from heaven but living there the way we live in our house, but we are not the house. In this way, God is the house. God is Shemaiah. He's one with and identical with that Shemaiah, that idea of Shemaiah. And what is that all about, Shemaiah? Well, there's Shem plus A-Y-A, Ayah. So Shem would be name, sound, essence, character. And most importantly for our purposes, the surface of something that reflects the inner essence. And so all Hebrew names had that quality to them. They had a meaning that reflected the inner essence of the person. They weren't just names that people liked because they sounded good, you know, that they sounded good with the last name or they were in vogue that particular year. You know, they meant something and they were the outs, the surface that showed the inner essence. The AYA ending extends something without limit. So the word for son is ben, you know, bet, house, nun, germinating seed, the house that continues, right? But if you add A-Y-A to it, banaya, then what you have is a generation. See how that works? It extends without limit. So when we take shem, light, sound, essence, and we add A-Y-A to it, shemaya, what we get are the heavens, the skies, the stars at night, the star field that we see, something that extends without limit, becomes the domain of God who extends without limit. And so what does this visible face, the heavens, the universe, all creation, show us about our God, tell us about our God's essence, about our God's character? Because this is what the writers were using. This is what Jesus is using. Our Father, 
whose face is the heavens. Kind of a loose paraphrase there. What does that show us about our God? It shows us that he is insanely extravagant. (laughs) Abundance beyond belief. Overflowing. Overkill. Think about the universe as far as we know it. And we're going to know a lot more about it soon. We've had Hubble for a few years now, but the James Webb scope is going to just blow things open with where it can go. But notice what it is telling us about what's going on. Right now, as far as we know, there are 170 billion to 2 trillion galaxies. Not stars. Galaxies in the observable universe. That's just as far as we can see. James Webb scope is going to let us see a lot farther. But right now, just in what we can see, 170 billion to 2 trillion galaxies. Now, those are just numbers. And you know what? We don't really have a, any way to have a reference for numbers like that, but maybe this will help. If you wanted to count to a million, one number a second, and you just kept counting 24-7, how long would it take you to get to a million, do you think? Long time? How long? rounding up it would take you 12 days now maybe that doesn't sound as long as you thought right to count to a million takes about 12 days now you want to count to a billion how long do you think a billion is going to take you once again rounding up about 32 years See, these are exponential numbers. We don't have, we, we throw trillions around, we throw millions around, billions around, and we don't have any reference for that. 12 days to count to a million. 32 years to count to a billion. You know how long it's going to take you to count to a trillion? 32,000 years. One number every second, 24-7, for 32,000 years. We've got 170 billion, I don't know how they come up with these numbers, to 2 trillion galaxies in the observable universe. And every galaxy has 100 to 700 billion stars. I mean, just our Milky Way has 100 to 700 billion stars. And we're just a small galaxy. We're not even a real spectacular one in terms of the ones that they're actually finding out there. And each star has a solar system, possibly, and has planets around it. And each planet, like our Earth has somewhere around 9 million to a trillion species living on the planet. And each species has billions or trillions of life forms within that species, especially if the bugs you're talking about, they got lots. What is the face that Shemaiah is showing us of our God? Insane extravagance. Abundance beyond belief. God is extravagance personified, if you will. An overflowing abundance. For God, if one is good, a trillion is better. That's kind of the way he thinks. In God, we don't receive anything at another person's expense. We're all paid the same, quote unquote. Remember that great story where the workers come in early in the morning, midday, and just a little bit before quitting time, and they all get paid the same at the end. And the ones that came early in the day, like the elder brother, are outraged. But everybody gets paid the same because this is the extravagance of our Father. This is who our Father is. There's always more where that came from, God would say. God can have an infinite number of best friends. 
Now, we weren't taught this way. We certainly have been trained this way. And our experience doesn't look this way, now does it? And the truth of the matter is, in a closed environment, and what's a closed environment? Something that has to live on its own resources, like your household, like your budget, your household budget, you know? Like a region, like a city, like a country, like a planet. Those are closed environments. And so in our experience there, yes, there are finite resources. And so we have learned to live that reality and deal with that reality. And especially over short time frames, I say short in quotes, even geologic time can be short compared to the vastness of the universe, but within our own lifetimes is very short. We experience shortages. We experience scarcity. And so we learn from that and we've extrapolated out to everything that we see and everything in the universe and eventually to God, that God must operate in the same way. The world doesn't look like it's abundant to us. But Jesus is showing us a spiritual truth despite the physical realities that we have experienced and the way that we were taught in our own homes and in our churches that have created this mindset that we have. And that extends to the way that we look at so many different things. I had someone ask me, you know, how is it fair for someone who's done really rotten things all their life and then in prison or someplace, you know, they have this conversion and then what, they're forgiven right on the spot? Even though I've been working here, here we are with the prodigal son, right? And the elder brother idea. And what about the thief on the cross? Yeah, just the last minute, he just has to turn to Jesus and ollie ollie in free. He's okay now, he's forgiven. That's all right. How is that fair? And what's, what's, you know, what's going on here? If we're working all day long. Now, from a scarcity mindset, from zero-sum game, right? From a legal point of view, this makes perfect sense. And the question is really an outrage. But what if there is another point of view, Jesus is saying, that we can go to? What if there's another way that we can look at all of this where things start to make sense? One of my favorite science fiction books of all time is Dune, and just came out with a movie. I don't know if any of you have seen the movie. Go see the movie. It's great. Of course, it, without reading the book, it may be a little opaque, but that's for another story. But this, basically, the idea is Dune is a desert planet. It's a, des- it's a planet that is a, an entire globe of sand dunes, just sand. It doesn't rain there. You know, there's hardly any moisture. And any moisture that you can glean out of it, you know, out of the atmosphere in the mornings and the dew is collected in catch basins. And they wear still suits that recycle all of the body's moisture. And it sounds gross, but it filters it and you drink it and you try to keep everything is based on the scarcity of water and water being the basis of life. How do you cope? And so everything about their culture, their religion, their society, their family makeup, how they live, everything is based on that scarcity of water. Think about what that would be if water, the source of life, were that scarce. Everything about human life would be based on that scarcity. And then an offworlder is inserted into their midst And she tells them that where I was born, water fell from the sky. It ran in great rivers and collected in oceans. And as she says that, the book says that there was this collective gasp that went up among the people. And then a sigh, and then just awe that such a thing could be possible. 
Imagine your whole life lived trying to scratch every drop and hang on to it. And suddenly it's falling from the sky. It's running in rivers. What would that do to your mindset? What would that do to your world? Imagine that you've lived poor all your life, counting every single penny. And then suddenly you win the lottery. Or you get a new job. Or you get an inheritance. And everything changes in a heartbeat. How does that change everything that you did? All the habits, all the attitudes, all the way that you looked at life. Suppose you've been lonely all your life. And suddenly you meet a life partner and you have a built-in family. (laughs) Suddenly you've got kids, you've got extended family, you've got all this life buzzing around you when there was nothing before. How does that change everything? How does that rewire everything that you had understood about life and the way that it lives? What if we could step off a starship onto a planet where water fell from the sky. We could drink all we want. We could bathe in it. We could swim in it. How does that change the view of water and life and religion and culture? See, what we believe about our Father and Mother God, about Avun, colors the way that we look at life. And if we think that our God is part of that scarcity, then we are going to continue to live in fear. We are going to continue to live with that scarcity. Jesus is telling us that our Father is an inexhaustible, abundant, extravagant love that falls from the sky equally on every single one of us, regardless of accomplishment, regardless of character, indiscriminately, degreeless, Now, that doesn't mean that we all are going to receive it the same. That's the whole point of doing what we do in terms of spiritual formation. Because if we're still living lives that are completely unaware, then we can't receive the love, but it's still there. Nothing can change that. It's always there for us. We are swimming in it right now, whether we realize it or not. You can't diminish it. You can't redirect it. All you can do is be unaware of it. And no matter how many get that love, it's still there only and all for you and for the person sitting next to you and the person sitting next to them. Infinite best friends God has. Kind of said that Yoda like, didn't I? It's not about how long you have realized this truth about our God only that you eventually do. We're all going to get paid the same because there's no other way that God can relate to us but with everything he has all the time. As long as we finally understand, as long as we finally come into the relationship, that love is there for us regardless. We can't earn it. The admission is free and every seat is front row center. Why are you going to care if someone came in later than you did? That's scarcity mentality. That's getting back to a legalistic understanding. It only matters that they do show up. It only matters that we can share the experience of this abundance of our God. 
This is the father that Jesus wants us to know. Balanced with mother, but also completely overflowing, extravagant, and inexhaustible, so that we know there's absolutely nothing to fear, so that we can let that abundance flow through us to the person we're with. And the cycle continues. Happy Father's Day. Let's pray. Father, this is who you are. This is who and what you are. You don't do it. You don't act it. You are this. And every time we approach you, this is what we get. Everything. Help us to put down the things that block us from this kind of understanding. Help us more and more to relax in the knowing that we can't exhaust you or your love or your approval or your forgiveness so that we're free to even make the mistakes that we need to make to understand more of who we are and how we relate. To know what's too far so that we can pull back and be comfortable in the place that we're at until we can go further, that we can experiment, that we can fail, and it doesn't matter, that we can enjoy the ride and not be so fearful of making mistakes or falling out of favor with you. This is who you are, Father. We need to be convinced through our experience of you. Help us to do that, Lord, more and more. Thank you for always being there in your love and constancy. Never let us forget, we can only love because you did it first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.